service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Good morning, Henry. Good morning, Professor. You came early today for your music lesson, huh? But it's all right. You get your cornet and I will call Lena to play the piano for you. Lena! All right, Papa. Now we will commence, huh? Are you ready? Come on. One, two, three, four. The stories about River Phoenix are insane. He spent his childhood outside the United States as part of a religious community that would eventually be exposed as a much darker, more dangerous cult. He was a natural presence on the big screen with no formal acting training. At just 18 years old, he was nominated for his first Academy Award. His desire to immerse himself in a character would sometimes lead him into dangerous situations, including propositioning Johns on the streets of Portland. He ran from some demons, confronted others, and starting way too young, developed an addictive relationship with illicit substances. And River Phoenix made great films. Unlike that clip I played you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Collins and Harlan performing Henry's Music Lesson from 1923. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to sample a clip from Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. And why would I play you that specific slice of Christmastown celluloid cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on October 31st, 1993. And that was the day that River Phoenix died suddenly on the Sunset Boulevard sidewalk. On this episode, religious cults, illicit substances, the mean streets of Portland in the late Great River Phoenix. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 1, Hollywoodland. Although some hadn't seen him in a few years, they all knew they would miss him forever. Filmmakers like Gus Van Zandt and Neil Jordan dedicated their latest movies to his memory. 
R.E.M. dedicated their new album, Monster, to him. And later a song, Ebo the Letter, bore an inscription with his name on the sleeve of its single. The Cult, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Natalie Merchant, Belinda Carlisle, Rufus Wainwright, the Stereophonics, Not a Surf. They all wrote songs that were directly about his legacy or about the tragedy of his untimely death. And every person behind every song, every movie, and every other piece of art that strived to quantify the sense of loss all acknowledged one truism. The most important thing is the hardest thing to say. To paraphrase Stephen King, anyway. He was only 23, the most talented actor of his generation. His greatest roles lay ahead of him, and he was gone. It was too soon, he was too young. How do you say that? How do you convey exactly what that all means? It was near the end of 1993 when River Phoenix walked into the Viper Room on Sunset Boulevard. The room was dark. It was always dark inside the Viper Room. That Hollywood club way, so dark that the stars could disappear. It had been that way since 1903. 8825 Sunset Boulevard. For over 100 years, the LA hideaway on the corner of Sunset and Larrabee was known by many names. The Cotton Club, Rue Angel, The Last Call, The Melody Room, Filthy McNasty's, The Central. In the 1940s, it was a hangout for wise guy Mickey Cohen, who ran dirty money through the basement. In the 1950s, it was a strip joint, again with mob cash and mob muscle, until it was shut down for violating obscenity laws. In the 1980s, it was a dive bar where John Belushi could be spotted in the shadows and off the radar and on the rails. And just months before River Phoenix walked inside on that fateful evening, October 30th, going on 31st, 1993. Johnny Depp had outbid both Arnold Schwarzenegger and Frank Stallone to become the club's new owner. The address maintained its CNBC allure, even if the venue's low-lit vibe made it hard to see anything at all. Tom Petty played there gratis on opening night. Unlike the story about Chris Chambers, the character River played in Stand By Me, the Rob Reiner film adapted from a Stephen King novella called The Body, River did encounter two men arguing inside the Viper room when he entered. And there was no knife, and River wasn't stabbed in the throat as he tried to keep the peace like the fictional Chris Chambers had been. But River was the kind of person to keep the peace. He was big on peace, big on love, big on family and veganism and goodness to others and to the earth itself. He was the kind of guy he wanted for a brother, the kind of guy he could bring home to mom, the kind of guy who was up for any adventure, the crazier the better, the kind of actor that directors only found once every generation, if they were lucky. Rob Reiner found that actor when he cast River in Stand By Me. That was 1986. It was River's breakout role, coming of age flick, piss up a rope, man. And that's all River had been doing up until that point, coming of age. River was just 15. He was Chris Chambers because he had already lived that role. Just like he had lived the role of Charlie Fox in Peter Weir's The Mosquito Coast, released later in 86. River played the son of a brilliant inventor, Harrison Ford, who rejects the commercialism of the United States and moves his family to Central America. River was intimately familiar with that narrative. He could also relate to the role of Danny Pope in Running on Empty, directed by veteran Sidney Lumet, who'd worked with everyone from Al Pacino to Paul Newman. In that 1988 film, River played the son of counterculture radicals who were on the run from the FBI and never stayed in one place for too long. River knew about counterculture, just like he knew about the rejection of American commercialism. River pulled from his own life experiences to make each character feel lived in. 
unlike a lot of his contemporaries, River had something unique, something special. He borrowed into his roles like the method actors of yore, and delivered performances that transcended his straight-out-of-central casting good looks. That all changed after Halloween 1993. Shortly after River died on a Sunset Boulevard sidewalk, the tragedy of his death overshadowed all that other stuff. His talent, his choice roles, his goodness. Fame will do that. Because fame doesn't care about what movies you were in or the sort of impact you made while you were around. Fame just wants to know how it all ended. Fame wants the stuff from the dark room, the room where you disappeared, where your star went out. The room that you managed to emerge from, only to collapse on cold asphalt under the pall of Hollywood light pollution. River's next role was supposed to have been Daniel Malloy in Neil Jordan's adaptation of the Anne Rice novel, Interview with a Vampire, a role that ultimately went to Christian Slater. Accepting that role was a calculated move. It must River's image. He'd been mussing that image ever since his pinup photos graced the pages of fan rags like Teen Beat and Bop. His dedication to the cultivation of himself as an actor was at the center of the best stories about River. The stories people told to keep the memories alive. The ones that made the campfire circles and treks out into the woods, where trains rumbled down nearby tracks and junkyard dogs failed to live up to their legend. River lived up to his legend, even when he was denying his own legend. Gainesville, Florida, 1989. A skinhead at the party made River Phoenix as THE River Phoenix. The one who'd just been at the Oscars. The one who was trying to blend in with the locals, play shows with his alt-rock band, Alaka's Attic. The same one who'd spent the day tearing down some of those old Tiger Beat pinup photos that a rival band had stapled next to the flyers for his band's upcoming show at the Hardback. The skinhead knew he wasn't just another dude. He wasn't gonna let him slip into anonymity that easily. But River was feeling contrarian. He was all method. He slipped into a role. He told the skinhead that his name was Rio. You must be thinking of another guy, he said. I'm Rio, not River. There's a difference. Another skinhead got in on the debate. He summoned a third, and soon River was surrounded. Nah, man, you're full of shit, one of the skinheads spat. His head tilted. Why are you full of shit? You got a fucking problem with me? Nope, River responded. No problem. He looked his three tormentors in the eyes just not interested in having this conversation right now. And the skinheads laughed. Not interested. And they laughed some more. Not interested. Are you interested in my fist in your face? Are you interested in my boot up your fucking ass? Or are you too good for that too? Look, River said, you want to beat the shit out of me? Fine. Why do you want to beat the shit out of me? Because I look like someone else? Because I am someone else? Because you think I'm not telling you the truth? The skinheads paused. Wait. They were confused. Did they not want to beat the shit out of him? Was he actually not the person that he thought he was? Was he telling the truth? Too many questions. The confrontation had become all pretzel logic and was therefore rope. In the process, however, River Phoenix had become someone completely different, right there before their eyes. Hollywood, February, 1971. John McVie looked out the window of his room at the Hollywood Hawaiian Hotel. Yucca Street was eerily calm, but John's anxiety was on 11. 
His English band Fleetwood Mac had just rolled into town on their American tour. It was supposed to be a rebirth, their first record in tour without founding member Peter Green. They had a lot to prove, and they were scheduled to prove it for three straight nights at the Whiskey A Go-Go. There was one major problem. Fleetwood Mac's guitarist and singer, Jeremy Spencer, was missing. He left after they checked into the hotel, said he was going to the grocery store. When hours passed and it was obvious that Jeremy wasn't coming back, the band went into panic mode. They called the British consulate, they called the LAPD, they called their label, Warner Brothers. They even got the whiskey's owner, Elmer Valentine, a former Chicago cop with a storied history of losing and finding guys via his connections in organized crime to join the search, but no dice. There would be no Fleetwood Mac shows at the Whiskey that week. Three days later, the phone in John's hotel room rang. It was the band's manager, Clifford Davis. John? The voice on the other end of the line was frantic. John, you're not going to believe this. They found him. They found Jeremy. But you're not going to believe this. Jeremy had gone trapo with the Jesus freaks. He was found dancing, chanting, and praying alongside 400 others at a four-story building in LA's gritty downtown the makeshift headquarters of the Children of God, a pseudo-revolutionary religious sect that preached change through rejecting societal norms. Jeremy's hair was cut short. He was wearing a sackcloth. He had given his $200 over to the Children of God, or more accurately, to its self-appointed prophet, David Brandt Berg. Berg was a pastor who had fallen from grace, booted from an evangelical church on suspicions of sexual misconduct, He rebounded by attracting impressionable hippies along the beaches of greater LA to what he called Teens for Christ. The hippies called him Father David or Moses or eventually just Mo. By the time Jeremy Spencer was absorbed into Mo's fold, Teens for Christ had morphed into Children of God. Its membership was growing exponentially. Mo was seizing the attention, not to mention the worldly possessions, of 20-something counterculture types who continued to desperately seek out the hippie dream. The same hippie dream that had begun its death spiral a few years earlier at the Rolling Stones' deadly Altamont Festival. John and the others in Fleetwood Mac hardly recognized their bandmate. All it took was a few days for Jeremy to become someone else. He had nothing, he wanted nothing, he said very little. They asked Jeremy to return, but he refused. He renounced Fleetwood Mac. He renounced materialism. He renounced his wife and his two children. He wasn't ever turning back. He was a child of God now. Crockett, Texas, 1972. Fleetwood Mac's sentimental lady crackled from the speakers as John Bottom drove his VW down I-45. Sitting behind him, his wife, Arlen, held their two-year-old boy, River Jude, and sang along. River was their first child, though they were currently expecting another. He was born at a peppermint farm in Madras, Oregon, which John and Arlen stumbled upon while driving around with their DIY mobile commune. With Arlen nearing her due date, they had put down stakes for a spell, and the couple's commune members worked the farm in exchange for a place to crash. The idealism of their hippie M.O. is what led John and Arlen to Oregon in the first place, and also what led them to Texas now. They were wanderers, peace, and lovers, and they knew there was more to life than materialism. There was a higher consciousness out there for the taking. War was over if you wanted it, and they were searching for something, something real, something true, and they would know it when they found it. Just like he, John Bottom, had known that she, Arlen Dunetz, was the one when he first saw her, standing on the edge of Santa Monica Boulevard back in 1967, 
Thumb stuck out in the dry Los Angeles air. She took his breath away. He pulled the VW over, offered her a ride, and that was that, brother. And they started a new journey together in that moment. It was fate. From there, fate gave them a mobile commune, and then the peppermint firm, and then River arrived, and then cut to another epic VW odyssey with John and Arlen, River and Toe, of course, still searching for that thing, that honest, real thing, somewhere away from the trappings of stuff, free from political and economic ideologies that smothered creativity and individuality. And they would know it when they found it. And in Crockett, Texas, in 1972, they thought they'd found it. The Children of God community in Crockett was one of over a hundred that had popped up across the United States and Canada in the early 70s. And at each one, members were expected to follow the same rules. Reject society, reject materialism, give up all your worldly possessions, don't pay taxes, and don't vote. David Brandt Berg, AKA Father David, AKA Moe's so-called children, were also expected to proselytize. They sang songs, they bore witness, they handed out pamphlets. John and Arlen were put in the group's leadership track, and soon they were seeing the world and spreading the word, from Mexico to Puerto Rico to Venezuela. And during their four-year tenure as proselytizers, their family grew. A girl, Rain, Joan of Arc, and then another boy, Joaquin Raphael, and then another girl, Liberty Mariposa. River and Rain took to the street corners of Caracas with a guitar and sang songs to scrounge up tips. And there was a darker reasoning behind Mo, their leader's call to live lean and live communally. The apocalypse was near, and it was best to unburden yourself of such meaningless flotsam and jetsam before the biblical shit hit the fan. But families like the Bottoms were being duped by Moe's cult, because that's what it was, a cult. They weren't told about everything that was going on behind the scenes. There were unspeakable things happening in the darkness behind closed doors. Some light was shed on the true nature of Moe's cult when he sent around a missive to his flock that encouraged women to freely practice what he dubbed flirty fishing. In other words, find wealthy and powerful men, sleep with them, and convince them to turn their money and their bodies over to the children of God. When that piece of mail arrived in the bottom's mailbox, the wool was pulled from their eyes. They began to see the cult for what it really was. And it wasn't that real, true thing they had searched so long for on the road. They severed their ties with the children of God for good. It wasn't until much later that more of the cult's truth emerged. Mo had been openly promoting incest and pedophilia in the ranks. Children were encouraged to experiment sexually with other children. And according to Mo, it wasn't taboo for adults to engage in sexual acts with kids either. Back in 1978, the Bottom family split for good from David Brandt Berg, AKA Mo and his children of God when they boarded a cargo ship in Caracas and sailed to Miami and they would search for a better reality. They would make a fresh start, and they cleansed the past by adopting a new surname, Phoenix, which was rich in meaning. For River, it was his first experience becoming someone new. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The club kids came from the suburbs. They came from Gresham and Beaverton, and they came across the Columbia River from Vancouver. When they made it to Portland, to the city nightclub on Northwest 13th Avenue, the boys could finally take their shirts off, and the girls could ignore the boys. And they all could feel free to be whoever they truly were, gay, bi, straight, curious, unsure, whatever. 
Most nights, the line to get inside the alcohol-free all-ages club stretched down the sidewalk, and the anticipation to get beyond the front door was palpable. Each time the door would open to let in another guest, unrelenting bass would ooze out into the night. So would a steady waft of clove cigarettes. The club kid at the front of the line would get the customary pat-down and then would walk inside, past the sign at the front office, the one that prohibited over heterosexual behavior, and then on into the main room, a dance floor heaving to the rhythm of house music and the flash of strobes. Boys in wigs, girls with shaved heads, studded collars next to pop preppy collars. From 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. every Wednesday through Sunday, anything went. The City Nightclub was the only place in Portland where marginalized kids between the ages of 15 and 25 felt comfortable being themselves in the early 1990s. It was an important gathering place for gay teens and kids who had nowhere else to go. And the City Nightclub offered a room where they could live out loud without fear of judgment. August, 1990. River Phoenix stood in the City Nightclub's long line, just another 20-year-old anticipating the transformative powers of deep bass, flashing lights, and sweaty bodies. But unlike the other club goers looking to be part of something bigger than themselves, River was looking to disappear. He didn't want to be River Phoenix that night. He wanted to be another anonymous Portland street kid looking for something that couldn't be found in the daylight. His locks of blonde hair were cut short, his tiger beat pinup style replaced with something greasy and haggard, thin, sunken eyes. He wore a dirty barn jacket. He was a fallen J. Crew angel. The river was disappearing into research for his next movie, My Own Private Idaho, directed by Portland's hot indie filmmaker, Gus Van Zandt, whose last film, Drugstore Cowboy, took home awards for Best Picture and Best Director from the National Society of Film Critics. In My Own Private Idaho, River would play Mikey Waters, a narcoleptic street hustler who hits the road with co-star Keanu Reeves to seek out some idealized version of his mother. For both River and Keanu, then best known as one half of the excellent Bill and Ted, the roles were daring choices that broke from their established tiger beat type. The role was such a dramatic shift that River's agent, Iris Burton, didn't want River taking the role in the first place. She was worried it would destroy him. It was worth the risk. Maybe if the role destroyed anything, it would be his teeny bopper image. To deliver a faithful character on screen, something dark and desperate unlike anything he played before, River lost himself in the seedy underworld street culture of Portland. He got into heroin. He'd been using hard drugs like cocaine since he was 15, freebasing at an age when his peers were experimenting with Zima. And so it was easy enough for River to go even harder in Portland. Smack was everywhere, especially in the city's underworld of dealers, users, and hustlers. And at places like the city nightclub, he sought out the action going on above the big communal dance party on the first floor. He was looking for what was happening upstairs, in the smaller room, the room with a darker soundtrack, more alien sex fiend than Frankie Knuckles. Because like all great things, the city nightclub had a flip side, a dark side. It lurked upstairs. It blended in among the shadows of the wallflowers. Coke, heroin, and pills were the currency. Creepy old men going incognito or trying to go incognito, though they always stuck out like sore thumbs. And they were looking to take advantage of younger boys hard up for attention or for a few bucks. The boys, on the other hand, were playing their own grip. Soon, they were the ones propositioning the older men in order to make a quick buck in one of the bathroom stalls. River had already been given a crash course in the grift game. That happened earlier that night. 
when Scott Green, a former Portland street kid who was part of the inspiration for the character of Mikey Waters, took River down to a four-block stretch of Southwest Stark, Portland's gay community referred to it as Vaseline Alley. The Pied Piper, somebody's place, gay bars and hotels where impulsive trysts were just as likely to happen in a lobby bathroom as they were in a paid hourly room. River and Scott took their spots against the wall of a building. The paint was peeling. Cigarettes burned between their fingers. The pavement was wet from a recent storm. Scott gave River pointers on his posture. Posture was everything posture could make or break a deal. And they watched a kid climb into the passenger seat of a sedan that had just pulled over into a handicapped spot on the side of the road. Its rear bumper was dented on the driver's side, headlights cut, muffler rumbling. And the kid closed the door behind him. How old is he, River asked. Scott shrugged. A few minutes later, the kid was out of the car, stuffing a bill into the pocket of his jeans. He lit a cigarette and disappeared into the shadows on Stark. We're up, Scott said to River, as a Volvo station wagon pulled up next to them. The middle-aged bald man at the wheel was making discreet eye contact. Just remember, if he box at the price, remind him that he's welcome to drive back home without getting anything. You've got the upper hand. River and Scott never actually followed through with any of the Johns they met on the side of the street. River just wanted to see how the deals were made. The two would bail on the Johns as soon as the deals were struck, laughing and screaming as they tore ass down the back streets of Vaseline Alley. Now, standing in line for the city nightclub, River looked across 13th Avenue. He was distracted by a small group of protesters lining the opposite sidewalk. And they were silent and pointed handmade signs at the crowd of club kids. Repent, read one of them, the letters surrounded by a cartoon depiction of hell. And the doorman had to yell to get River's attention. He was next in line. There was an issue. River wasn't carrying his wallet. Immersing himself in the research of the role, he wasn't carrying anything that would identify him as his true self. And since he and Scott had bailed on all the Johns that night after sealing each deal, he didn't have any cash on him either. He couldn't pay the cover charge. Against his best judgment, he told the doorman under his breath that he was, in fact, River Phoenix, researching a new role. Gus Van Zandt and all that, surely that name meant something here, right? Drugstore cowboy, you know? Could you let him in for a quick look around? And the doorman asked for ID, and River had nothing. Listen, the doorman said, either you get the five bucks to get inside or you don't. But we're gonna move this line along, and if you really are who you say you are, you should have some ID on you proving that to be true. I think I would know River Phoenix when I see him, and let me tell you, you ain't him. In the early 1990s, the Sunset Strip in Hollywood was a 24-7 pharmacy. Whatever you wanted, you could get. You just had to know where to look or who to ask. Sometimes you didn't even have to look for it and the pharmacy would find you. Did you need anything? Coke, ecstasy, weed, uppers, downers, junk? It was a bad scene for someone who was doing more drugs than he was letting on. Perhaps even self-medicating as he navigated the demons of his past and the pressures of fame. While researching his role for my own private Idaho, River disappeared a little too far into his fictional character. So far, that when the shoot was over, he didn't fully return to who he was before. His recreational drug use had become unchecked. 
He would often binge for hours or days and then swear off drugs when another Sunday morning came down. And this was a cycle that played out over and over again. He ran that cycle sometimes with John Frusciante, guitarist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the LA band River had become friendly with as he continued to make a go of it with Alakazatic. Frusciante really left that faded pink mansion up Laurel Canyon Way, the one that everyone called Houdini's Mansion, even though it was Errol Flynn who had lived there, not Houdini. Frusciante had gone on hiatus from his day job with the Chili Peppers and was spending most of his days and nights at the so-called Houdini's Mansion doing the so-called disappearing act. River was interested in that, disappearing. Hollywood, October 31st, 1993, 12.27 a.m. River carried his guitar as he made his way inside the Viper Room. It was his intention to get on stage as part of the pickup band that Johnny Depp had assembled to perform songs of his band, P, as in the letter, that evening. Every performer in the band was looking for the same thing River was looking for, to play against type, to be reborn, if only for the evening, to disappear. And there was Johnny Depp, actor by day and Viper Room owner by night, playing the role of singer and guitarist. Al Jurgensen, ditching his standard industrial fare and ministry for something far less transgressive. Gibby Haynes, frontman for the Butthole Surfers, seeing what it was like to not be the sole frontman for once. Ben Montench, keyboardist for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, downshifting from sold-out arenas to slum it with the cool kids. And there was Flea, bass player for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who wanted to jam with a unique roster of LA cats and glean some new insight into the art of collaboration. Flea's usual collaborator, John Frusciante, had already attempted to play an opening set, but he had brought that Houdini Mansion vibe with him down from the hills. He was high as shit. He barely made it through one song before he stopped and puked on the stage. And the Viper Room stage was as tiny as the pickup band's roster was deep. There just wasn't enough room for River to take part. So he took a seat, guitar at his side. It wasn't in the cards to become another version of himself on stage, alongside all the other versions of all the other performers who were better known for doing things besides being in a pickup band called P. And though the room was dark, this wasn't the streets of Gainesville or the meaner streets of Portland. This was Hollywood. And inside the Viper Room, he was made as the River Phoenix by those who walked by his table. Not even 30 minutes later, however, almost as soon as River had been made by those in attendance as a celebrity that he was, River was gone again. He'd split. He wasn't at his table. He wasn't standing in the tightly packed crowd in front of the small stage, absorbing the ripple of sound waves coming from Johnny Depp's band. Where was River Phoenix? He had slipped out the back door of the Viper Room, undetected by most inside. He remained anonymous on the outside too, and that's where he was, on his back, on the Sunset Boulevard sidewalk. The seizures started, his arms flailed, his legs kicked, his head banged against the pavement, and the rumble of Johnny Depp's pickup rock show seeped out from the Viper Room's black walls. Hollywood revelers taking advantage of a Saturday night to celebrate Halloween one night early sidestepped around River's convulsing body, and they were used to random encounters with derelicts tweaking on the sidewalk, but they had no idea who was literally dying right in front of them. Neither did anyone still inside the Viper Room. And by the time the paramedics arrived, River had been having a series of seizures for about 15 minutes straight. He was out cold, no pulse. They administered a shot of Narcan, CPR. They took him to Cedar sinai He was pronounced dead at 1.51 a.m. Halloween morning.
official cause of death, an overdose of cocaine and heroin. News of Rivers' death hit the wires and the disappearing started again. John Frusciante locked himself in the Houdini mansion up the hill. Johnny Depp skipped town, and the Viper Room closed down for a week and became a makeshift shrine to Rivers' memory. Steve Lightfoot, an unemployed cook who drove a van around town that read, Stephen King shot John Lennon, see the photos that prove it, peddled a crackpot theory that River was secretly murdered by the American government for his crusades against animal cruelty. Years later, another particularly explosive murder theory bombshell was dropped by someone close to River. Director William Reichardt, who had worked with River on the 1988 film A Night in the Life of Jimmy Reardon and, at the time of River's death, was preparing to work with him again on his upcoming version of The Man in the Iron Mask, gave an interview to writer Gavin Edwards in 2013. Edwards was speaking to Riker as research for his book about River called Last Night at the Viper Room. In that interview, Reichardt claims that shortly after River entered the Viper Room and immediately before he began to have convulsions, a friend of his, a guitarist, stopped by his table and gave him a cup and told him to drink it. Reichardt's story goes that River did as he was told, but that he had no clue that the cup contained a dissolved speedball. That's cocaine and heroin. And not just any speedball, but one that was eight times a lethal dose. You can easily go online and find many zealous defenders of this theory. The theory that River Phoenix was actually killed, whether intentionally or not, by someone that he knew. These theories from William Reichardt and Stephen Lightfoot, regardless if you believe them or not, regardless of whether or not they are real or fake, they do do the same thing. They displace the pain and draw our focus instead to the scandal and the shame of it all. And they also get to a more profound truth. The truth that the most important things are the hardest things to say. And sometimes it's easier to mask grief behind a scandalous claim or a makeshift sign on a white van than it is to state what we really feel that it sucks that River Phoenix is no longer with us. And how do you convey exactly what all that means? When we watch his intoxicating jaunt as a young Harrison Ford in the opening scene of Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, or his nuanced comedic turns in I Love You to Death and the vastly underrated sneakers, we all think the same thing. We'll miss him forever. Because River Phoenix ought to be here. He ought to still be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.